Today I'd like to share with you the scripture from Luke 2, 21 through 38 in the New Revised Standard uh, Translation. After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout and looked forward, forward to the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when his, the parents brought the, in the child of Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, you are dismissing your servants in peace according to your word. And for my eyes have seen your salvation, which have prepared you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, this child is desired for her the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, 37 of them as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this text um, was fresh to me this morning at 5 a.m. because I got a text message from someone who was supposed to be our guest speaker, and um, they were not feeling well. And so I rose at 5 a.m. and thought, I've got to write a sermon for today. <laughs> so I, I came to this text trying to, to see it with fresh eyes and new perspectives today. But I also asked for grace from you today <laughs> uh, if this sermon isn't my best work. But I, in my experience, when I've ever had to do this in the past, somehow the Holy Spirit uses this in ways that, that go well beyond my time I could spend preparing. Um, and so I find it interesting today as I, as I, as I read this passage, I, I, one of the things that really stood out to me was the unexpected nature um, of many of the characters in this life, in, in, in this story, right? Like Mary and Joseph, they in no way anticipated that they would be the parents of the Christ child. Um, they in no way anticipated that this would potentially be their lives. 
and then the things that Simeon tells them about what will happen for their child, I doubt they anticipated the end that would come when he's, he uses the word that eventually that uh, her soul will be pierced, that Mary's soul will be pierced. I can't imagine that she probably thought about that later when Christ's side was pierced on the cross as she stood by the cross watching it happen. But I'm also thinking about Simeon in this story, right, who's been waiting for the Messiah. He believes he's been told that he will not die until he sees the birth of the Messiah of Jesus. And then you have this other woman named Anne, or Anna, I should say, who is present in the temple for all these years after her marriage ended after only seven years. And then she spent the rest of her life after this marriage ended in the temple just serving God, praying, fasting, serving those in need. None of these people's lives turned out quite like they anticipated, I bet. None of these people's lives were quite the, what they expected or what maybe they hoped for. And when I was very thinking about a particular person, about someone's life who was alter, extremely altered by the way in which their life turned out, I think about this woman in a church I used to pastor in Buffalo Grove in Illinois, I mean, in the suburbs of Chicago. And uh, I remember there was a particular one very involved, I mean, extremely involved. I mean, if there was something going on, she was there. If something was going to be happening, she wanted to know how she could get connected into it. Very involved person. But there was this one month every year that she would just disappear. She wasn't in worship. She wasn't volunteering for anything. If you asked her to do something during that month, she would say no. I always thought maybe this is, she's really good at self-care, and she's just taking the respite every month, every year at this time to regroup and reground herself so that she can be super active like she's been the other months. At my last year there, uh, my last month actually there, she was incognito, but she wanted to be able to say goodbye to me. And she knew this was her last opportunity to do that. And so she asked if she could meet with me, and so she came into my office and we sat down and she said, I want to tell you a story, and I'm always afraid to share it because I'm afraid that people will judge me, and I carry so much guilt and shame about it because it's nothing I never expected to happen in my life. And she said, you're leaving now, so I'm not as worried about you judging me and looking at me differently every Sunday from the pew. She said, but also I feel like I really can trust you. She's like, there's one thing I've learned from you, it's that you really don't condemn people. We all make judgments, don't we, but I'm not quick to condemn so she sat there with tears crawling, just flowing down her eye and her lips quivering and her hands just kind of crumbling this Kleenex. And she told me the story about a time she had just left to go to the grocery store to pick up some food for dinner that night for the kids. And as, she, as a light turned green and she went, a man on a bike drove out in front of her and she hit him. And she said she watched him take his, his, his last breath and look into her eyes on her windshield and then it's at this time every year that she begins to have nightmares. She begins to see his eyes looking at her through the glass. And she begins to be filled with regret and shame because she saw the newspaper articles about it. And she went to the funeral and saw the children whom he left behind crying. And she could hear the tears of the kids at that funeral. She said she was overcome with grief. And every, she had been through lots of therapy but every year at this time, no matter how much therapy and work she had done, no matter how much she medicated herself, all the grief would come back. And she said, you know, I, sometimes I, I, I just can't bear to be in church and take communion that month because I don't feel like I'm worthy of forgiveness. I remember grabbing her hands, reaching across and saying to her, you are not guilty. That was a mistake. You are forgiven. And you don't have to serve as much as you do in this church to make up for it. 
With that, she began to cry. She said, I do, I'm trying to make it right. I said, I know. It all makes sense now. There's no one that you have to pay this debt off to. There's nothing that you have to do to make this right in this church. Our, our God's not expecting that of you. I release you of this. And with that, she cried more tears and she hugged me. And then that last Sunday when I was, she usually wouldn't have been in church. There I saw her sitting. And there she came down the communion aisle. I got to serve communion of true reconciliation to her one more time. And I hear the story of that woman whose life did not turn out the way she had anticipated. If you look at this woman's life, her life was, quote-unquote, perfect on paper. She had everything that I could ever imagine I would want in my life. But there was this one thing that just wasn't right for her, that hurt her, and she carried it nonstop all the time. And today in our story, in our text, I again see the intersection of all these different people whose lives didn't quite turn out maybe the way they had anticipated or they had hoped. Joseph and Mary bring Jesus to the temple on this day because this is custom. So eight days after a Jewish child was born, they would be circumcised. And 40 days later, the family would come to the temple and the mother would have to go through a purification process. Why? Because after you give, gave birth uh, to a baby boy, you were, you were considered unclean for 40 days and not allowed to touch anything that was holy for 40 days after you gave birth to a child. Same laws and rules applied to those after you menstruated. You was a period where you were allowed to come to the temple because you were considered unholy. If you gave birth to a boy, it was 80 days. Sorry, other way around. If you gave birth to a, a boy, it was 40 days. If you gave birth to a girl, it was 80 days. Consistent, it seems, doesn't it? It's interesting that in Leviticus 12.4, this is where it tells us, it says, says, during the second period, now mothers were not permitted to touch anything holy or enter into a sacred space. So during this period after the birth, they weren't allowed to touch anything holy or enter a sacred space. Yet here comes Mary and Joseph holding little baby Jesus into the temple to bring an offering so that Mary can be made clean after she gave birth. And I think this is super ironic because they're touching the most holiest thing in the whole world, Jesus. <laughs> As they come into the temple to, pay, to give this offering to be able to be made holy and clean again, to be able to enter into this holy place. And we know that through the life of Jesus that there is a time later when Jesus begins to continue to clarify that don't call unclean the things that I've made clean or the things that I think are clean. And Jesus is later touched by a woman who's got an issue of menstru constant menstruation and that woman touches him and she receives healing and he says, who touched me? And he tells this woman that her faith healed him instead of a rebuke of don't touch me, I'm holy, you're unclean. We know that Jesus was in the very beginning before he could even speak, his parents were turning things upside down, it appears. What I think is even more interesting here is that Luke, Luke reveals something to us in this story. He tells us what kind of, anybody remember, what kind of offering was, what they were, that, that they brought to that day? Maggie said earlier. Yes, the sacrificial. What did they bring? Pigeons and turtle doves, all right? Well, pigeons and turtle doves were the sacrifices of people who were poor. If you had money, you would have brought a lamb. That would have been the Levitical expectation. You bring a lamb. But then there's a clause right after that that says if you're poor and you, can't, you don't have a lamb, you can't afford a lamb, Bring a sacrifice to the poor, a pigeon or a dove. And so Luke is giving us a little head nod here and saying, guess what? Jesus the Messiah is from a poor family. Jesus the Messiah comes from not much means. Now, we wouldn't know that by reading that, but any of the readers would have heard that and go, oh, wow, Jesus comes from a poor family. Otherwise, you might not have known that. So Simon, 
who's been living in the temple for all this time, devoted to the work of the Jewish community and to the holiness and sacrificial, sacrificial system. He's considered a prophet during this time. He believes that he cannot die until he sees the Messiah, that God will hold, give him this expectation that, or, or that God will hold this expectation uh, in true fashion and he will see Jesus before he dies. And I can imagine that he's probably getting a little tired. He's been there for a while. And is it ever going to happen? And am I going to die and not see the things that I'd hoped I'd get to see in life? I think there's many of us in this room probably who often sometimes think about that. I know as I watch my grandma deteriorate and age and as we have conversations about what her life looks like now versus what she thought her life would look like at this point of 82, I'm constantly having those conversations that I imagine that, that's, uh, that Simeon is having with himself What's happening? Is this ever going to happen? Is, is this, this isn't how I pictured this happening. When is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? When is life going to get worse? Am I going to be able to stay in my home or am I going to go to a nursing home? I'm wondering if Simeon's thinking, am I, am I going to be able to stay in this temple one more day before the Messiah comes? And then as he's sitting and waiting as he has for some time, he looks and he sees across the temple floor. This poor little shabby family with some birds in a cage and a baby cradling in Mary's arm, and he goes, I hear the Spirit saying that that's the chosen one. That's Jesus. That's the Messiah. And I can't help but wonder if Simon went, or Simeon went, huh, um, I, I can't be hearing that right. I must have had some bad falafel for lunch. Like, there's no way that, that that's, like, I doubt that the Jesus the Messiah came from a poor family. That, that's, that's not really how I pictured this playing out. Also, I really didn't picture the Messiah coming to offer a sacrifice with his family after this 40-day period and not bringing, like, the very best, a lamb to sacrifice, not some pigeons. I mean, this is the Messiah. He should be bringing at least a lamb, the very best, right? I mean, other people, but him. And yet the Spirit's saying, that's the family. That's the family you've been waiting for. Go. I wonder if Simeon had any type of internal battle wondering, doubting, questioning, this isn't what I pictured for my life or how I pictured this big moment I've been waiting for to play out. I wonder if he questioned the divine voice inside of him. But yet he goes and he tells the family, this is the child I've been waiting for. This child will do great things. Now I can pass from this earth because I've seen what I've waited for. But then someone else enters this scene that sometimes doesn't actually get a lot of street cred or noticeability. Her name is Anna. She comes into this picture of the story, and Anna is a prophet, a female prophet, one of many female prophets throughout the Hebrew Bible that we then see merging into the New Testament. And they give us a little background on her in this moment. They give us some background that she was married for seven years before her husband died, as I talked about a moment ago, and she spent 84 years as a widow living in this temple. Uh, theologian Liesl Gwynn Garrity says this. She says, you know, Luke could have just chosen to leave this woman out of the whole narrative. I mean, she doesn't really say anything of too great a benefit. Uh, really, the whole narrative of speech goes to Simeon. The theologian goes on to say, though, but I think perhaps that Luke knew that those in the margins saw what others could not yet see. They knew without really knowing because it was the kind of knowledge that shifts the chemistry of your heart. 
Here you have this woman named Anna, right, who's just kind of sitting watching Simeon go up and engage. And I wonder if Simeon and Anna had ever had conversations about, wonder when the Messiah is going to come. I wonder if we're ever going to see the Messiah. I wonder how long we're going to have to wait for this moment. I wonder if it will ever happen in our time. I wonder if we understood the Spirit of God right, that we would see the Messiah before we die, for the time seems to be persisting on. And then I could imagine that, that Sarah or, or Anna sees Simeon go up to this family and engage them. And then Anna's like, oh, Simeon's already up there. He seems to be doing just fine. And she's just listening and taking in and watching, wanting to see how this will play out. And then when he's done, she goes up to them. This patient and persistent woman who had learned to just wait. Learned to take it all in. In this moment, she goes before this holy family and she asks them to basically trust her with her wisdom. Just as Simeon had asked she goes dedicated because she had spent her whole life waiting for this moment. In this moment, she gets to see Jesus in this precious, innocent way. When I think of this woman named Anna kind of just lurking in the corners of the temple and lurked, finding her way over to the Holy Family after Simeon had talked to her, and she's, 86, she's been in there for 86 years, and there's another seven years you can add on to that from her, mar- from her marriage. I don't know how old she was when she got married, but she's been waiting a long time. She's learned to be patient and to know that things do not happen on her timeline, nor do they play out the way that she had ever hoped or anticipated. And yet she goes and she engages this family. When I imagine Anna in this story, I sort of imagine her in my mind the way I picture Mother Teresa. This woman with sort of like wrinkly hands and a sort of a happy but long face because of all the pain and suffering that she's seen in the world. A woman that's quiet and patient and kind and present to the needs around her yet also aware of the own internal battles inside of her. Mother Teresa, you know, we, we, we idolize her sometimes, don't we? We look at her and we're like, oh, she's, she's, she's a saint of all saints. She's incredible. But we also know that she had a real dark night of the soul. She had battled with doubts and fears and wonderings. In some of her letters and what also her confessor has shared, she's quoted saying this, in, from the 50s to the 90s, she really doubted her faith. She said, I want to love God as he, as he has not been loved. And yet there is that separation, that terrible emptiness, that feeling of absence of God in my life. This woman who was the hands and feet of God in ways that we tell stories and idolize, so often she did not sense and feel the presence of God in her own lives. She writes this story that I think is really powerful. She says, I'll never forget one day when I picked up a woman out of a garbage bin. She was burning with a fever, actually near dying at that moment. She kept saying, my son did this to me. My son did this to me. Mother Teresa says she did not think of her sickness of her, or, or of her pain or of her burning fever. No, when I found her, all she could say was, my son did this to me. I took her out of that place and into my home, into the home of the dying. And we took many hours to help ease her pain that she had. We cared for her. Before she died, she was able to say, I forgive my son. Thank God that before she died, she found the peace to say that. But till that time, the pain in her heart of being unwanted by her own child in death overwhelmed her with physical suffering. Mother Teresa says, this taught me so much. She says, what a trust it is for God to place suffering people in our hands. It is a sacred vocation for all of us. Sacred because each of them is a life that God has created in his own image. 
Today in this world, God made us to be his love and companion. We become his love as we pray and as we come to see his face in the lonely eyes of others. When I think of Mother Teresa, I think of Anne in our passage today. Because I think about two women who could look into a crowd or into a space and they could see the divine in people who often others might have just dismissed for the reasons of the fact that perhaps they appeared poor, or for the reasons that perhaps it seemed that their family didn't want them and discarded them and they were sick, that she had the, they both seemed to have these spiritual eyes, as did Simeon, to be able to look and to see people who just looked normal or perhaps were on the outskirts and to also see themselves in them. But more than that, to see the Imago Dei, the image of God in them. And to love them and care for them when others might have dismissed them. Throughout the last couple of months, we've been working through several different spiritual practices as a church each month, having a different spiritual practice that we're inviting everyone to do and to participate in. We're halfway through the year. I don't know, maybe some of you have tried one or tried two or tried none, but guess what? You still have half the year to do so. And this month, for the month of July, the spiritual practice that Vicki um, wrote for us to be able to, to practice is called For the Sake of Others. And for the sake of others is a spiritual practice where Vicki is inviting us to do six acts of kindness if you're an adult, three acts of kindness if you're a child. And then after you do those acts of kindness, to, and while you're doing those acts of kindness, to be sensitive to the ways in which you see God in that situation. God at work in you, God at work in other people, God at work in other situations. And Vicki wrote something in the spiritual practice blog about this when we were, when we were all encouraged to do these practices and she said, it's okay to feel good about that afterwards. It's okay to do something kind and to feel good about it and for that to be where you see God having done something. I'm going to tell you, when I heard that, that was the first time I ever heard somebody tell me it was okay to feel good about doing something good for someone. I was always taught, don't feel good about that. It's for the glory of God. And if you're doing it for, your, for, for, for you to feel good, then it's not a good purpose. And I realized, man, I believed that for a long time. And sure, I shouldn't just do it so I can feel good. <laughs> but it's okay to feel good afterwards as well, to know that you made someone else feel good, that you did an act of kindness. And when I think of Mother Teresa and I think of Anna in this story, I, I, I can't help but stop and think about the joy that must have filled their hearts as they extended their hands and their feet and their love and their words well beyond what they had anticipated or thought and the ways in which maybe it swelled them with joy that made up for all the years of waiting. And so I, I've started this um, spiritual practice because I think I want to see, okay, what happens? What, where do I see God at work? Where do I see God speaking? And so I did something this re just recently. Um, I decided that there was this, uh, I found out that there was this uh, woman right across the street from me whose husband had passed away. And I typically, on garbage night, I'd go over and I would take their garbage cans out and I would put it out on the corner and their, her husband would wave to me from the window because I had watched him struggling many times to pull the garbage out. And I've been doing that for some time now. And when I started doing it, I started doing it because there are my neighbors, for my grandma, they do that for her. And I always wish that I could be closer to my grandma to be able to do that for her. And so I thought, okay, I can't be there for them, but there's neighbors that are there for my grandma. I can be there for these folks right across the street and do this simple thing. Well, I started taking the garbage out, and I didn't see him waving anymore. And so I asked a neighbor about it, and the neighbor shared with me that he had passed the last week. It was early in the morning that the 
paramedics had showed up and they'd taken him away, which made sense because I had seen a lot of cars and activity over there and I didn't know what was going on. But there was so much cars and activity, I, I thought, well, I should go take something over to her. I should go do something nice. And I just really felt the Holy Spirit say, there's a lot of people doing that right now. Give it a few weeks, you won't see hardly any cars. Things will get quiet over there. And that's when she's going to want someone to show up. I said, okay. And I thought, I hope I don't forget. And there were several moments when I would feel the Spirit prompt me, go over there, take something over there, take something over there, go knock on the door. Oh, I'm too busy. I have this going. Oh, I have this going. I have to do this. I have to do that. I was running around. It felt like the Holy Spirit kept prompting me at all the wrong moments. I'm like, could you, could you prompt me when I sat down for Netflix? Is that would have been a better moment? Not when I'm running around doing errands and getting to work or meetings. But finally, I felt so clearly I was supposed to go over there. And so I took this vegetable tray and I walked across the street and I she opened the door, and as soon as she saw me, she just started crying. And I handed her the veggie tray, and she was very shaky, and so I took the tray, and I put it on the living room counter, and I said, hey, I, you know, not everyone can eat, you know, sweets and things. I thought vegetables were safe. She says, vegetables are my favorite. Thank you. Oh, that worked out great. And we sat down, and she began to talk about how hard this was and how quiet the house was today. And how lonely she felt because this was the first day that no one had called. And she knew maybe one of the kids would call later to the day, but it was just so quiet. And so we talked and we carried on. And as I left, I stopped to embrace the spiritual practice. I said, God, what did you, where did I see you? What did you have to teach me in that today? And I just felt a few things spoken to my mind and my heart. I thank God for letting me not forget for helping me to be listening to that prompt to keep doing it until I did. I thank God for loving neighbors around my grandma's home that helped model for me what I was being called to. I thank God for giving me the words to speak to her today and the words not to speak, to just sit and listen. And I thank God that as this woman cried that I had been able to sit with my grandma through very many similars and pains and frustrations so that I could sit there and deeply sympathize with this woman and be grateful for the time and the memories that I've shared with my grandma. I think the beauty of this story that we see today is really a call, church. And to call to stop down and to live into this spiritual practice. The spiritual practice to be people like Anna and Mother Teresa and people like Simeon and people like the neighbors that live on my grandma's street who just stop for a moment and they're sensitive to what the divine that they see among them. The opportunities to extend love and mercy and forgiveness, the opportunities to listen and be present to people's needs, the opportunities to see where God is at work or where God can use us maybe in ways and in people that we otherwise maybe would have written off or turned our backs to. I think the call today in this passage is to realize that none of our lives ever turn out quite the way we expected and none of the people that God ever calls divine often look the way we think divine should look. And like Anna and Simeon, we are invited to go and engage the Christ child and the divine in each of us. And I think and when we do that, I think that's what sets the world on fire. I think that's what makes a difference.